0: In
1: an experiment. No, 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 no.
0: Why is Blight
2: so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no
1: idea. But now the data
3: speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding.
4: Nature.
1: Nature.
2: Hello and welcome back to the Nature podcast. This week we're finding out how enzymes adapt to the cold and watching mice form memories.
0: Plus the mystery of how animals sense Earth's magnetic field. This is the Nature Podcast for the 7th of June, 2018. I'm Sharmini Bundel.
2: And I'm Adam Levy. Crucial to every last cell on Earth are enzymes. These molecular machines are catalysts overseeing the chemical reactions in the cell. Enzymes transform molecules known as substrates into other molecules, products. But these chemical converters pose a perplexing puzzle.
5: The problem is it's well known that uh, chemical reactions actually slow down generally with lower temperatures.
2: This is Ashok Dennis, a biophysicist at the Scripps Research Institute. So, because chemical reactions slow down at lower temperatures, if you cool a particular enzyme, it works more sluggishly. But if you look at the enzymes of organisms that are adapted to live in cold conditions, this isn't what you see.
5: In fact, in low-temperature organisms, uh, enzymes actually work at similar uh, rates, let's say, as enzymes in uh, room temperature. How do these enzymes do that at lower temperatures? So that's the conundrum.
2: Somehow, enzymes in these organisms have adapted so that they work just as fast in the cold as normal enzymes do at physiological temperatures, around 37 degrees Celsius. The obvious place to look for such tweaks to the molecule is the active
5: site, where the substrate molecules bind and react. So you might expect, uh, you know, just uh, naively, that changes in the enzyme that compensate for lower temperatures, they would occur right at the active site. But actually people have found uh, cases where the uh, compensations actually occur pretty distant from the active site. But how are these distant
2: changes compensating for the slowing effects of the cold? One clue is that these cold-adapted enzymes often have more glycines in their amino acid chains.
3: And glycine makes fluctuations much more probable because glycine, um, you know, glycine has a lot of ways to arrange itself.
2: This is Vince Hilser, who's been puzzling over this chilling conundrum in a paper out this week. Glycines make it easier for sections of an enzyme to unfold and wiggle around. Vince thought this might be crucial for how some enzymes are boosting their reaction rate at lower temperatures. So he put it to the test. His team took a normal enzyme, adenylate kinase, and tried to adapt it for the cold.
3: We thought that if we put these glycines in particular parts of the molecule, at particular sites that are not near the active site, we could increase the uh, amount of uh, time the enzyme opens up and wiggles in these particular regions. And if we did that, then uh, we thought that it would be possible then to uh, mimic the actual cold adaptation.
2: Now, this approach doesn't easily fit in with the conventional view of enzymes as rigid machines. And for adenylate kinase, that view involves parts of the molecule doing their jobs in a structured, mechanical way.
3: You know, the current models for how this enzyme works is, is that these, um, these portions of the molecule just open and close over the active site like a door. These, they're actually called lids for that reason. The, it's like, you know, a car with the car door open and the car door closed.
2: In this picture of the enzyme's operation any times that parts of the molecule spend unfolded and wiggling about shouldn't be relevant to its operation, this rigid, structured opening and closing of the car door. So adding in glycines away from the active site to boost these wiggles shouldn't have an impact on the enzyme's function.
3: What that's tantamount to doing is like taking your car and removing the side view mirror. So if if opening and closing your car door is why the enzyme works, then taking the mirror off is not affecting anything.
2: But when Vince and his team took the mirror off, that is to say, added glycines to different regions of the enzyme, they did affect things. They tried adding glycines to two separate sections of the molecule, neither of which were at the active site.
3: And so by making these individual mutations, we could either cold-adapt the release of the product or we could cold-adapt the pickup of the substrate. In both of those cases, adding the glycines made it better for the cold.
2: By adapting this molecule, Vince has demonstrated that wiggling can provide one way for enzymes to overcome the slowing effects of the cold. The study may only investigate a single enzyme, but Ashok, who wasn't involved in this study, thinks there's plenty of potential for future work to extend and develop this cool research.
5: I think there's a good chance uh, that many other enzymes would show similar effects. So I think uh, the results of this work kind of open the door, uh, in a sense, uh, to studies on other enzymes and probing similar characteristics and perhaps even um, design of enzymes which would work at lower temperatures. Uh, So, for example, in... Uh, you know, biotech applications, etc.
2: That was Ashok Dennis of the Scripps Research Institute. And before him, you heard from Vince Hilser, who's based at Johns Hopkins University, both in the US. Vince's paper is at nature.com forward slash nature, where you'll also find Ashok's news and views discussion of the research.
0: Now, here at The Nature Podcast, we love all science, and astronomy is absolutely no exception. We particularly like stars. Oh, yeah?
2: Uh, what's your favourite number of stars, Sharmini?
0: Oh, uh, good question, Adam. Um, how about maybe five stars?
2: Uh, if only there was a way that our listeners could give their favourite number of stars to us. Like on their favourite podcasting app or something? Oh, now there's an idea. Do you think that was too subtle? No, I think we pitched it just right. Now, do we actually have some astronomy coming up next? Ah, no. Uh,
0: But we do have Noah Baker. He's been delving into the mouse brain to better understand memory.
6: How do we remember? It's a question which has been challenging neuroscientists for decades. Now, there are lots of theories, and although some of the mechanisms remain a mystery, there are some basic concepts which most scientists can agree on. For example, one of the areas of the brain crucial for memory formation is the hippocampus. This appears to be the first port of call for new memories. Here's Thomas Heinmüller from the University of Freiburg in Germany.
1: So it seems to be that indeed when you store or try to store a new memory, initially it is represented by the hippocampus, but then it will be transferred to some other part of the brain later on.
6: The hippocampus, for the most part, seems to act as a temporary or intermediate memory storage before those memories are shipped off to other areas of the brain.
1: So in mice there is conclusive evidence that um, already after around 10 to 15 days these memories are, um, are consolidated into other brain areas like in cortical areas.
6: Thomas is interested in a particular part of the mouse hippocampus.
1: So the hippocampus is actually, it's composed of several sub-areas and it starts with the dented gyrus. It has a very unique cell type, the granule cell, which is a neuron that first of all, it's generated throughout adulthood. So there are continuously new granule cells integrated into that brain circuit, which is rarely the case in other parts of the brain. And also these cells are very unique because they fire very little...
6: To gain a better understanding of what these relatively quiet granule cells are doing, Thomas used one particular marker of memory.
1: So we were looking um, for a certain manifestation of a memory. It's also called an engram. So basically it would be a a group of cells that is active during the encoding of a memory and probably is going to be reactivated during the um, retrieval of that memory.
6: To monitor these patterns of firing neurons, n Thomas and his colleagues used a technique much loved by neuroscientists, two-photon imaging.
1: We have basically all the neurons in the hippocampus labelled with a transgenic calcium indicator That makes them pretty much light up every time that um, these cells' fire action potential and calcium comes into the cell. And then we use a 2 photon microscope to record video data from these neurons. So therefore we are able to record simultaneously from up to several thousand neurons in one animal at each point in time.
6: For this procedure to work, Thomas needed to keep the mouse's head still in relation to the microscope. But in order to study its memory, ideally it should be able to move around. The solution? Put the mouse in virtual reality.
1: We place it on a styrofoam ball that floats on air and the mouse can run on this ball and we track the motion of the ball underneath the mouse and use it to control a kind of video game and we place monitors around the mouse that displays this video game to the mouse. So basically when the mouse runs forward on the ball it will move forward through the virtual world and it will see it's moving through the virtual world on the monitors.
6: By letting his mice run down different virtual corridors, Thomas could monitor how neurons encode changes in the environment. Things like the corridor's length or changes in its virtual decoration Crucially, Thomas could also monitor the same neurons of the same mice on different days to look at the engram stability over time.
1: The hippocampus per se is an intermediate memory storage, so basically, we wouldn't necessarily expect any of these cells to have a permanent encoding of something, so therefore, they might have not, or they would probably not have stable representations of anything. On the other hand, we knew from studies using behavior and optogenetics that even after some weeks you could reactivate a certain group of cells in the hippocampus, in the gyrus specifically, and then this would still recall the same memory in the animal that it did um, like shortly after the animal perceived something. So therefore, we were really curious about what we were going to find and especially if there is like, distinct differences between the hippocampus subareas in terms of how they or how they maintain information over time.
6: Sure enough, Thomas and his colleagues found that many engrams in the hippocampus are transient, not lasting long before they get remapped into a new memory. But when they looked at the granule cells in the dentate gyrus, they saw something different
1: these granule cells, even though they're not very active and they have very unique properties, they have a very unique code because this is really very, very stable. This led us to the conclusion that the dented it actually has a stable reference map of a certain environment.
6: Thomas described this as being a bit like a blueprint, a basic unchanging map onto which more dynamic and changeable details can be added later.
1: Very likely this can be used to construct then a dynamic engram in the later parts of the hippocampus. And it kind of makes sense because the exact contents or the context of some memory, it will gradually change. Like when you have a conversation at work each day, the topics of the conversation will be quite different. Also maybe the people involved will be, but the general setting it will be similar.
6: Thomas thinks that this ability for the hippocampus to represent both broad, stable memories and dynamic, less stable memories could help scientists build a more complete picture of how memory works, and maybe even one day help better understand conditions which impact memory.
1: We may have found here the outlines of a memory assembling machine, if I may call it like that. I think the next step from here will definitely be trying to understand more like, how are concrete memories assembled? How do I form a representation of a certain event? And how is this assembly of memories disturbed in different conditions that affect your memories? But in order to get there, we really need to try and understand what's the, what's the procedure.
0: That was Thomas Heinmuller from the University of Freiburg in Germany speaking with Noah Baker. You can read his study at nature.com forward slash nature.
2: Still to come in the news chat, we're hearing about efforts to have a conversation with aliens. No, really. But before we get to that, it's our picks of the news from elsewhere. It's the Research Highlights, brought to you this week by Ellie Mackay.
7: When it comes to brain size, humans are a notch above the rest, at least in comparison to other mammals of a similar body size. Now, scientists have identified a cluster of genes which may play a role in giving us our unusually heavy heads. The family of genes is known as NOTCH2NL and seems to have appeared around 3 to 4 million years ago, at the point when humans and modern-day apes split. In lab experiments using miniature brain models called organoids, deleting these genes made the brain smaller. Another team of scientists showed that more active NOTCH2NL boosted fetal neuron production, potentially explaining how the genes drive the growth of bulkier brains. These genes could be an important part of the evolution of big-brained humans. To read more, find this top-notch paper in Cell. Researchers in California have been proving that science isn't always glamorous. They've been digging through ancient dog poo, and what they found is surprising. The team analysed 14 samples of fossilised faeces from an ancient relative of dogs and foxes called Borophagus parvus. These canids were around the size of a small Dalmatian and weighed around 25 kilos. But within their droppings, scientists found chunks of bone from much larger animals, deer-like mammals that weighed as much as 100 kilos. This means Borophagus parvus must have had ferocious, muscular jaws to be able to crush the skeletons of a dinner much bigger than themselves. It also suggests that they may have hunted in packs similar to hyenas and could have coordinated and cooperated in their hunting in order to bring down such large prey. To get your teeth into more of that story, head over to eLife.
0: Next up in today's show, reporter Benjamin Thompson has been exploring how animals get from A to B using the Earth's magnetic field.
4: Listeners, I am pretty terrible at finding my way. Asking me to get somewhere without my smartphone is a mistake. Unlike me, though, many animals are terrific at navigation, migrating sometimes thousands of miles and all without having to stare down at a tiny map on a screen. In this week's Nature, Henrik Moritzsen from the University of Oldenburg in Germany has written a review looking at long-distance navigation. I gave him a call, and he gave me a couple of impressive examples.
8: One is uh, these bar-tailed gotwits that migrate from Alaska to New Zealand in a single flight over eight to nine days and nights with no option to land, and they can't swim. So that's Pretty impressive. In Australia, there is a moth called the Bogon moth, and it is common in central Australia in the winter time. But it escapes the heat of the summer and goes to a few specific caves in the snowy mountains uh, in southeastern Australia, and. The animals that relocate those curves over a distance of maybe 1,500 kilometres has never been there before and still locates exactly the same caves.
4: Now these are just two examples, and there are countless more. But exactly how these feats are done is, well, it's rather debated. In this review, Henrik explores some of the different cues that animals use to find their way. Many animals are known to be able to detect the Earth's magnetic field, which offers a number of advantages when it comes to navigation.
8: Well, the magnetic field of the Earth looks as if someone had placed a big bar magnet in the center of the Earth, and the magnetic field lines now leaves the poles, curve around the Earth and come back in at the other magnetic pole. And the magnetic field has a number of characteristics that can be very useful for navigation. The magnetic field intensity is about 60,000 nanotesla at the magnetic poles and about 30,000 nanotesla at the equator. So generally, if you measure magnetic intensity, you have a pretty good idea where you are on the north-south scale. Now, the direction of the magnetic field, it will be good for a compass to give you a north-south reference. And if you now compare the direction of magnetic north compared to geographical north, you get what's called magnetic declination. And that would be a really good cue in some parts of the Earth to determine where you are east-west. So there are many different aspects of the magnetic field That birds and sea turtles and a number of other animals can use to navigate on a global scale. But the biggest scientific question remains how do these animals actually sense this magnetic information?
4: And this is a huge question. How do animals detect the magnetic field and the subtle differences in it to know where they are or where they're going? Well,
8: there are two major hypotheses that both have support in different kinds of animals and sometimes even in the same type of animal. So one way you can detect magnetic fields is if you have a little iron oxide crystal, for instance, magnetite, that will turn like a compass needle, basically. That biological Organisms can generate such particles is proven because there are so-called magnetotactic bacteria, which are basically swimming compass needles.
4: But while some bacteria may use the magnetite method, Henrik suggests the evidence of this system in other organisms is lacking.
8: Nobody has so far been able to locate magnetite assemblies at a consistent location in many individuals of the same species and connected to nerve tissue. And if you can't find these iron oxides in the same location in every animal of a given species and it's connected to nerve tissue, it cannot function as a sensor.
4: Another major hypothesis for how animals could navigate using the Earth's magnetic field involves quantum mechanics, light and the spin of electrons
8: the magnetic compass could be light dependent and based on radical pair chemistry. Now, a radical pair is a molecule or or two molecules closely associated, which generates two unpaired electrons. And to do that, you need energy input, and that's the light. And if certain conditions are fulfilled, this radical pair is now sensitive to the direction of the magnetic field in the sense that the magnetic field influences the way that the electrons spin. And depending on how these electrons spin, the chemical characteristic of this molecule changes. And in this way, you can generate a
4: chemical compass. A quantum system like this could be incredibly sensitive to variations in the Earth's magnetic field, useful for accurate navigation. There's even a potential candidate for the system – a particular class of molecules called cryptochromes – that have been found in the eyes of migratory birds. As yet though, there's no proof that these molecules are involved, or even that the system itself exists in nature. And even if it is a light-based system, it presumably wouldn't work in all animals.
9: The sea turtles that we study can sense magnetic fields in complete darkness.
4: This is Ken Lohman from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who researches migration in marine animals.
9: That indicates that they don't require light uh, to generate uh, pairs of radicals, as has been hypothesized in uh, some other animals such as birds.
4: Ken suggests that maybe sea turtles use a radical pair system that doesn't rely on light. Then again, maybe they don't use the system at all. When it comes to sensing Earth's magnetic field, it's not necessarily either or. In his review, Henrik suggests that maybe some animals use both the radical pair and magnetite systems. And Ken thinks along the same lines.
9: It seems likely that there is more than one mechanism. There's no reason to believe that uh, all animals have to detect magnetic fields the same way. Uh, The Earth's magnetic field has been around as long as animals have been, and it's perhaps not surprising that uh, different groups have evolved ways of taking advantage of the Earth's field. Uh, so it seems plausible, at least to me, that uh, there, there might be more than one mechanism uh, or even that multiple mechanisms might exist in the same animal. Getting to this
4: final answer on the system or systems that animals use to detect Earth's magnetic field will likely require a combination of scientific fields, covering everything from quantum physics to neuroscience. And we haven't even talked about the other methods that animals could use to navigate. Olfaction, landmarks, temperature, the list goes on. It might take a while longer yet, but perhaps soon researchers will be able to unlock the secrets of how animals are able to achieve incredible feats of navigation.
0: That was Benjamin Thompson. He was speaking to Henrik Moritzon and Ken Lohman. You can read Henrik's review over at nature.com forward slash nature.
2: Finally, this week, it's time for the News Chat. And joining us in the studio for her News Chat debut is senior editor of The Nature Briefing, Flora Graham. Hi, Flora. Hi. Now, first up, there's been a review of European Research Council projects. What were they assessing in this review?
10: Well, this was an independent panel of experts who were looking at how successful these projects were. I mean, this is Europe's most prestigious funding body. It gave away almost €2 billion last year. So what this panel of experts found was that nearly one in five of these projects funded by the ERC did lead to a scientific breakthrough. So they've got big impact. And another interesting point is that the ones that were most successful were also deemed to be higher risk. So what experts are saying is it's worth putting money into these high-risk projects because they actually are having big rewards.
2: And how do you actually assess what, what is a higher risk project in the first place. What, what does that mean?
10: The, the way they did the assessment is they the experts were given a random sample of representative projects. So they were asked to kind of answer certain questions about these projects. How much impact did it have? How would it have changed the landscape of research in that particular field? And a whole bunch of different variables in order to come out in the end with an analysis of, of how that research actually resulted in real world effects or significant changes in field.
2: You mentioned real world effects there. What kind of impacts are these projects having on the real world, either economically or societally?
10: Well, the report didn't reveal specifics about which projects were the most effective. For example, it was more trying to look at the overall success of the funding body. But what it did find was that because the most successful projects were also the highest risk, even if funding bodies and funding bodies in Europe do tend to be, in general, a little bit more risk averse. If they are interested in economic rewards, they don't necessarily have to stick to low risk economic focused projects. Even those projects that are higher risk and maybe not directly focused on economic rewards will still do things like First of all, move the needle in terms of that actual bit of science, but also have effects on um, broadening the technological ability of the country, for example.
2: Will this information actually be used? I feel like we often hear about surveys like this and it's great to have that information But then it kind of just disappears into a void.
10: Well, it does come at a crucial time for research funding in Europe um, because this week the European Commission is expected to release its detailed budget for the next installment of its really big funding pot, its next big funding program, um, which is called Horizon Europe.
2: So this might actually be taken into consideration in some way.
10: Exactly. I think people are looking to determine whether the kind of blue sky research is going to um, have the same kinds of effects and the same kind of value as the more practical projects.
2: Well, we'll have to see if the ERC does take this new information into account when it awards future funding. But next up, a really big question. Is anyone out there?
10: That is a big question. I think that people are starting to feel more and more confident that with all of the exoplanets that we're finding, some of them not that far away, um, some of them we can tell they're in that you know, habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone, nice and close at the perfect distance to their star. People are starting to think that uh, this long-held fantasy that we've had, that aliens are going to be contacting us or we're going to be contacting them soon, is getting a little bit more real. And that's probably why um, a group of linguists last week have had their first meeting to talk about the real nitty-gritty of how we can communicate with aliens.
2: And this isn't just picking up messages. It's actually thinking about how we would send messages out there to aliens.
10: Exactly. So this this uh, group is called METI. You might have heard of SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. They were in the movie Contact. But this group is the messaging extraterrestrial intelligence group. And their focus is actually sending messages out. Now, this group is really starting to think about what kind of commonalities do we have in language? These are big questions even for humanity. We don't necessarily have a firm understanding of whether language is innate in the minds of kind of any species or any creature that has logic and thought and that kind of thing, or whether it's more connected to like the shape of our bodies, for example, or the environment around us. So in the first case, we might be able to get to common ground with any thinking logical species but in the second case if it's really about the shape of our bodies and our planets um there might be cases where we and aliens could kind of never ever come to a point where we could communicate
2: well it sounds very difficult even to start thinking about how to answer this question so first perhaps a more simple question how physically would we get a message out there would we just blast radio signals into the sky.
10: I think that what this group is focusing on are these exoplanets that are nearby and that are in the habitable zone. So I think the idea is rather than blast in every direction at once, let's try to focus on those planets that have a higher potential for alien life.
2: And it wouldn't necessarily just be organizations like METI who are trying to do this though, right?
10: Yeah, I mean, in theory, if you had access to the equipment needed, anyone can do this. And uh, the linguist we spoke to, Sherry Wells-Jensen, she did talk about the fact that there are apparently people out there who have radio telescopes who are sending out signals. And one of the things her group is trying to do is actually create a database of all the signals that are being sent out. Because their concern is, let's say at one point one of these does hit the jackpot and an alien race does reply and we don't have a record of which signal was sent out or when or what it said, well, we'd be in a bit of a pickle.
2: Now, let's say uh, an alien life form does reply to one of our messages. We know what the message we sent was. How do we begin to unpick that? Have they thought about whether we'd even be able to recognize that it was a message in reply?
10: Absolutely. I mean, science fiction authors have been thinking about this for a long time. And the linguist that we interviewed, Sherry Wells-Jensen, she really pointed out that there's a big crossover between science fiction authors and linguists. So these are questions that people are exploring. Um, Of course, there's kind of a, a common consensus that things like mathematics naturally drop out of... Let's say, for example, building radio telescopes. So once a civilization is at a point where they're able to build the kind of mechanisms that can do this kind of communication, hopefully we might have some common ground, whether it be mathematics or the kind of music and patterns that come out from that.
2: So we could just share equations with each other for a while.
10: Sure, that's what we do now, isn't it? <laughs> More or less,
2: that is the Nature of the Nature podcast. And on that note, we should probably wrap things up. Flora, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And Flora, as I mentioned, is editor of The Nature Briefing, which is a daily email keeping you up to date with all the latest science news. Flora, where can they track that down if they want the latest science news? Oh, you news? should head
10: straight to nature.com briefing to sign up right now. That's it for this week's show, but we'll be back with all the in-depth
0: research news at the same time next week. Until then, I'm Sharmini Bundel.
2: And I'm Adam Levy. Thanks for listening.